He has a PhD, lives here in Nashville. Um, he has over 25 years of experience as a clinical and consulting psychologist specializing in marriage and family therapy. Bill refers to his work as being in the relationship business. Today, his thriving practice is focused on consulting with family-owned businesses, career counseling, executive coaching, counseling, counseling couples, families, and many in religious vocations. If there is one common thread in Bill's work, it is to challenge people to be stronger than they think they are and to help them meet the challenges in their lives in very concrete ways. Bill also screens seminarians for the priesthood and those discerning a vocation to the religious life for several different orders. He spends considerable time engaged in senior executive coaching, succession planning, and conflict resolution mediation. It gets me tired just thinking about all that, oh my goodness. The good part is he's married to his wife, Marie, and they're married in 1987, and now they have eight sons and one daughter, ages 9 through 27. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? From 1988 to 1993, Bill served as vice president and general manager for the International Division of Hospital Cor Corporation of America with responsibility for operations and business development in Europe and Southeast Asia. Their first two boys were born in Singapore and a third in Spain while living and working overseas. Marie, his wife, she's a housewife. But as you know, you probably know that she's more than a housewife. She has um, a beautiful, beautiful voice, this beautiful singing voice. And I know her well. She, she led our 40 Days for Life um, uh, rally. It was so beautiful. Her singing um, just sends a message to women, to moms, to be moms. You know, so, it's so good. And she's the Catholic, so she's a Catholic mother and housewife. She strives for holiness in the modern world. Dr. Bullett has published multiple articles in professional journals and conducted numerous presentations and workshops and seminars at conferences throughout the world. He can occasionally be heard substituting for my hero, Dr. Ray Garendi, on Relevant Radio. Together with his wife, Marie, Bill presents on marriage and family life, the psychology of marriage and marriage preparation. He received his doctorate in clinical and consulting psychology in 1985 from Vanderbilt University. The title of his topic today is kind of challenging. The Demise of Marriage and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Dr. William Bullett, thank you for being here. decorate someone's home um, she loves to redecorate and there's a, a friend who's invited her over whose house is dwindling because her kids are moving away and she wants to rearrange her house and uh, my wife likes to call it redemption through redecoration <laughs> And so, um, Marianne Goodrum invited me to do this talk some time ago, and I started writing it yesterday. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to read a little bit, but um, I, I was just up actually with working with a family in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and was listening to Emmerich vote on the way back. Uh, Father Emmerich vote, if you've never heard him before, is just a... Uh, an inspiring and really funny priest. And 
Uh, there's just a lot of quotes I have in here from him because he just had me practically steering off the road. I was laughing so hard. Um, I am a marriage counselor, and I do quite a bit of work counseling relationships, um, resolving conflict in the workplace. And there are many reasons that people give for human conflict. But what I have found is that it really boils down to no one wanting to do anything that's hard or inconvenient anymore. Do, it's doing your own thing instead of doing what's right. We're encouraged to live that way now. And it's really just about doing what we want, not what God wants or not what others want, what I want. And we live in, a, indeed, a very confusing time. We yearn for a sense of meaning and connection with others. Yet we're so confused about our own identity and gender that we don't even know whether or not to go into the men or women's bathroom. Throughout history, mankind has sought comfort, peace, freedom from pain and suffering. In a time, especially in this country, when we have so much comfort, wealth, incredible health care, longer lifespans, why are we so depressed, anxious, and unhappy so that people need to go to see psychologists? I mean, we got along without psychologists for thousands of years. Now, as a psychologist, though, many of you might expect me to tell you that we need to blame someone else for all of our misfortunes because so many of us are damaged by some sort of trauma, parental neglect or abuse, biased and judgmental religious morality restricting our freedom or even a corrupt government where the fear of global warming and the guilt we should feel for our carbon footprint well I'm kind of a heretic in the field of psychology and instead the theme of my talk today in a nutshell, is about disobedience. The root cause, as I see it, for our misery and the demise of relationships today is directly related to our self-absorption and our unwillingness to submit to any kind of higher authority. We're taught in an increasingly secular culture that there are no definitive moral guidelines and that we are all called to define our own identities, preferences, lifestyle. In other words, anything goes. Yet, in spite of all this freedom that we have to define our own identity, we're more confused than ever about what will bring us peace and joy and contentment in life. We're told that we deserve to have what we want, that no one should ever judge anyone in our relationships, our friendships, marriage, family. We should get what we want or abandon them and find others who will give us what we need. Now, you know, some of this is not really new. This trend has been going on for a long time, even in the church. The Protestant Reformation and the proliferation of thousands of new Christian denominations are all based on what? The rejection of authority and any definitive moral teaching, otherwise known as truth. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He saw evil in the church and he broke away, he broke away to form his own perfect church. Many even in the Catholic Church complain and they seek the perfect church to attend. Some have formed their own, you know, 
Catholic churches rejecting the Pope and rejecting Vatican II and so forth, but they missed the point. The church is perfect. The people are not. As Emmerich Vogt suggests, go ahead. Find the perfect, weedless, sinless church that meets your needs, and once you join it, it will no longer be perfect. (laughs) So as the world progressively abandons submission to God's standards, we rely instead on what? Our own personal definition of what is good or true. Because we're so different and imperfect, we end up having to submit to daddy government, which is also managed by men, without any higher authority to guide them, and defining for us what we should believe and how we should behave. We see what's happened in Europe, and we're getting closer to it in America. The rise of governmental control because we are so mean, intolerant, and we can't seem to behave or get along with each other. It's not unlike a child who is not behaving and doing what he's told. So parents have to do what? Punish and take over. However, if the parents have no higher legitimate authority, that is God, to whom they must submit, the government takes over how we should raise our children. Two of America's three branches of federal government have declared war on parental authority. President Obama's Department of Education has been explicitly attacking schools that have the audacity to prefer traditional morality. Increasingly, parents are being denied the right to establish familial rules based on traditional morality. So then what happens? What happens when the parental desire to teach children self-mastery and long-term decision-making contradicts the children's desire to imaginatively create their own identity? What happens when a parent refuses a teenager's request for greater freedom, for sexual experimentation, or for gender reassignment surgery. How can we not define this as parental abuse of authority that prohibits the child's desire for self-definition? As progressive as progressives have consolidated control of America's public schools, they increasingly expect moral education to occur in the schools rather than in homes and churches. In our catechism, it says the natural desire for happiness is of divine origin. God has placed in the human heart this desire in order to draw man to the one alone who can fulfill it. We were created alone for God in order to achieve infinite happiness, not finite happiness. As we seek finite happiness in this world, we'll never be satisfied. We can use almost any example of things in this world that bring finite happiness. Take, for example, something as simple as certain music or a musician that we enjoy. If you grew up loving Frank Sinatra, or the Beatles, or for you, hippies, Led Zeppelin, you listen to their music over and over. But what happens? Eventually you kind of grow tired of hearing the same songs so you wanted more. So you wait for and buy their new album, and the process continues. It's not unlike the alcoholic or the lust addict who can never get enough in this finite world. Our real goal is heaven, and the way there is love. The most general definition of happiness is the fulfillment of desire. And the most general definition of unhappiness is the frustration of our desires. 
the most important function of the heart is to seek meaning and purpose in life. And this infinite desire for happiness differentiates us from all other animals. Pope Benedict tells us that love is the foundation of all immortality. And immortality is founded on love alone. Love is the essential principle of the spiritual life. And by this Jesus says what? All men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the irony here is that we so desire love, yet in order to attain it, we have to give our love to God who wants us to love Him. In the same way in our everyday lives, loving another in a relationship is the way we find love. But we're confused and we seek what fulfills us rather than what others want. We're encouraged to fulfill ourselves and not others, which only leads to frustration. You know, in my practice, when I tell people this, they kind of turn their head like a confused puppy. Really? You're not supposed to just go after what you want? Isn't that what you get married for, so you can get what you want? It leads to frustration for people, and they don't understand. This is because in order to receive love from another person, they must feel loved by you first. Think of a person in your life when you were young, an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, a coach, who whenever they saw you, they were delighted. And they told you how wonderful you were. Did you like them? Well, of course you did. Why? Because I like you. When we don't feel loved or liked by another, there is little desire for us to want to give ourselves to them. At least in the way others prefer for us to love them. You know, when I was with my young family and we just got back from overseas, I would always come home. I worked hard all day, and there were bicycles in the driveway, and the mail that I wanted to go out wasn't out, and there was disorder, and dinner was late, and we had soccer practice, and everything was in disarray. And I'm an order person. I like order. So I would complain. I learned from my clients what not to do every day. <laughs> And I found myself telling men, when you come home, first say hello. <laughs> Smile. Act like you love and appreciate the other person. Then you can complain. But then by the time you do that, none of those things really matter. So, you know, in relationships we all want different things. We usually find ourselves choosing a partner who's very different from us. You know, the order person marries a musician, an artist. You know. And there's a reason for this attraction to our opposite. It's part of God's design. Initially, when we're selling ourselves to form a closer bond with someone, we give others what they need because we're selling but as time passes and we become more comfortable, we get lazy and we find ourselves feeling like we're giving more than we're getting back. Not unlike getting a new roommate. We've all had roommates, right? Initially you're delighted, but over time we become irritated. And it doesn't take long before we want to murder them. And this is because the relationship is considered temporary. It's functional. It's not permanent. And we're not inclined to sacrifice and serve over extended periods. It has a different function than true friendship and certainly marriage, a sacrament. In a permanent relationship like marriage, 
If we are sacrificial and obedient to God's expectation that we deny ourselves and serve, even in the face of our own dissatisfaction, we accomplish two vital things. First, we maximize the chance that our partner will eventually give us what we want. Because we're nice, and we like them, and they want to please us. And two, even if this doesn't occur, rather than living in the prison of our anger and our disappointment, we instead become comfortable with the fact that we've done our part. We've abandoned trying to fulfill ourselves and done what we know we need to do for the other person. This is known to the sisters as abandonment to divine providence, right? <laughs> a long-term relationship, particularly marriage, is a process, I like to say, of erosion. We erode each other's excesses and weaknesses. I've learned to relax. My wife has learned to be a little more ordered. We become closer, more alike than different. But guess what? It hurts. It's painful. But isn't this what Jesus promised us? It's going to be hard. <laughs> Over time, if you see a couple that makes it into their 80s or 90s, what do you notice? They become almost like one person. They almost look alike. They walk alike. They think alike. They still drive each other crazy. But they're better prepared and formed for heaven. They've eroded each other. It's a beautiful thing. God's desire for us requires abandoning our own desires and preferences. This is love. And love is our origin and our fulfillment. St. Paul teaches that love never passes away. It has no end. It is the only reality on earth that will remain as it is in the life to come. Sin is simply an abuse of the freedom that God gives us for love. Or call it disobedience. All of our human freedom was designed by God to be at the service of love. And one becomes similar to God in the way that we love other people. Peace is an effect of love. We all desire peace and happiness, yet it only comes when we love like God does, by giving ourselves to others. We have a tendency to seek happiness in what others give to us. But happiness does not come from others. It doesn't even come from our spouse. It comes from God. Happiness is attained by giving ourselves to Him in the way He wants us to love Him, by being obedient to His rules, by loving one another and giving ourselves to one another. It really boils down to behaving ourselves, having self-control, managing and denying our own temporal desires and preferences. In other words, Again, like Emmerich Vogt likes to say, happiness is an inside job. Let's work on you. Achieving peace is within us and requires the development of an interior life that is dedicated to and obedient to God's will for us. So a happy and virtuous life are synonymous. When we do the right thing for others, we find peace and happiness. Now, it's sort of a confusing concept, but we need proper self-love in order to love others and to achieve genuine happiness. We sometimes make the mistake of bonding primarily with others because they need us. Some are drawn to and have a tendency to marry others who are needy, and they believe they can fulfill or fix them. But only God can fulfill us. 
many even in my profession, perhaps more in my profession, and in the healthcare field, who do have an affinity and a love for helping other people, often choose an overly needy partner or an addict. And they think they can somehow fix them. In other words, we think that by being needed, we will find love. But this doesn't work. Only God can do this, and we cannot give what we don't have. Another person who needs us is not loving us. Love is an act of simply giving ourselves to another without expectation. And that's the key. Because when people give, they often expect, well, what am I going to get back? Um, 12-step programs like AA have a saying I just love. Expectation is premeditated resentment. Think about it. Proper love is theocentric. As St. Augustine conveys, proper love is love that seeks good for itself. By loving God above all else, this is proper self-love. We seek what God wants, not what we want. It's theocentric, not egocentric. Distorted self-love is when we look to ourselves instead of God for our purpose in life and what we are supposed to do. The love of self wishes good for itself by loving God above all else. When we do the loving thing, we find peace. God wills only what is best for us. And Jesus gives the best example, doesn't he? Of love. Even when Judas comes to betray him, what does he call him? Friend. So isn't love really just obedience? It's often simply doing what we don't prefer or feel like doing. This is the essence of parenting. Helping our young, innocent, self-absorbed, narcissistic little brats learn how not to do what pleases them, but instead to do what pleases others. Many parents come to me and ask, you know, Dr. Black, how can I get my kids to behave and do the right thing? Now they expect me to, you know, say, well, have you had them see a therapist? Uh, or maybe get them tested for ADD? Um, no. The essence of my answer boils down to two simple things. First, are you behaving in your life toward your spouse and to others in a way that God expects you to? Because our kids are going to copy us. Uh, this is a true story. I had a couple come in once. Husband and wife. They had two kids. And they said, Dr. Bullett, we're not here for marriage counseling. We're here because we have a problem with our kids and we can't figure out what's wrong. They're having problems. Both of them are teenagers. And the woman was talking at this point. The man just sat there quietly. And she proceeded to tell me that her son was just expelled from 11th grade for being combative, using foul language, and he actually got into a fistfight with someone. Then she said, and our daughter, who is in the 9th grade, is starting to go down the same path. We're getting letters back from the teachers that she's belligerent, foul, doesn't get along with other people. So she paused for a moment, and the husband said, and I would like to add, and she jumped out of her chair and said, was I finished? And then she used an expletive. I wonder, people don't, if you want your children to behave, the first thing you have to do is behave like you want them to. Then, two, you must, like God, be consistent in your expectation for good and virtuous behavior, yet still convey love. 
forgiveness, and hope, even when the kids aren't obedient. I'll give you another example. This is my style of parenting. My son Luke, um, who's 25 now, one morning when he was attending Overbrook, and um, it was a cold, rainy November morning. You know, nasty. And I went into all the bedrooms. Guys, ready? Get ready. Come on, school time. And I have, we have this one room with all these bunk beds. And Luke was in one of them. And I said, Luke, and you need to get out of bed right away because today's garbage day. And Luke did the garbage on Wednesdays. So I said, oh, Dad, please. I just, it's, it's so cold. And, and, and it's raining. And I didn't get all my homework done. And I really don't feel very good. Can't I just stay home? Can't, can't I just stay in bed? I looked at him and I said, Luke, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I can't think of anything better than to crawl back in bed and just snuggle with mom the rest of the day. Cancel all my appointments. It'd be nice. But then I couldn't feed you. And there'd be a lot of disappointed people. So I'm going to have to do what I don't feel like doing. And so do you, so get your butt out of bed. <laughs> we have to be loving, but we have to just be consistent with expectations. This whole self-esteem movement that occurred over the past several decades is just really ridiculous. Kids develop self-esteem by accomplishment, not by being told it's okay not to try hard, not to do the things that you don't feel like doing. And it's really the same concept we need to have in all relationships. That is to love, serve, and give ourselves to others when they irritate us. Instead, the real cause of the demise of marriage and relationships in our culture is related to being encouraged to do what we want. And this is not love at all. And so love is doing what we may not feel like doing, both for the good of others and the good of ourselves. It's not unlike doing an intervention for an addict. I do some of these sometimes. And when they're confronted by their family members, they say, I don't like this. This is unfair. I don't like this. And what do the family members have to say back? Well, you know, we don't like it either but we're doing this because we love you. So when we say we don't like something, we're referring to what? Our emotions. Our feelings. Now feelings or emotions are not bad. Even anger, jealousy, fear, these are legitimate feelings. They're not immoral. When we have feelings, they're perfectly legitimate. But if we allow our decisions to be made based on our emotions, that's when it's wrong. That is why in love, we may feel one thing or another, but that is not love. That is a hard thing to convey, you know, young couple. But I feel like I'm in love. What happens when the feeling goes away? What happens then? What God expects from us in love is to conquer our passions not be consumed by them. Anger and forgiveness are perhaps the most difficult emotions or passions for humans to conquer. We often hear people saying what? I simply can't forgive. I can't do it. What are they really saying? They're saying, I won't forgive because I feel angry and hurt. But forgiveness is not about being able to eradicate your feelings. They're still going to be there. It is simply about bearing no ill will toward another person. It doesn't mean you have to embrace all the other people in the world that you disagree with, who hurt you, or who offend you. You don't need to invite irritating co-workers or terrorists over for dinner 
What we do need to do is not bear ill will. This is based on an act of the will and the intellect, not on feelings. Unfortunately, our secular pop psychology culture encourages us to succumb to our emotions and not our intellect. You don't have to like someone or certain people who are doing bad things or who offend us. Instead, we're called to forgive them, pray for them, and even come to their aid if we're able to help them and there's an opportunity to do so. Relying on our feelings, especially with those we are closer to in relationships, is also very dangerous. Especially in our families, if we continue supporting and rescuing others because we feel like we should love them, which a lot of parents do with their kids, and we feel like we should always come to their aid, even when they repeat inappropriate or destructive behavior, we need to use our intellect to make an informed decision. Often this may mean having to convey factual information, truth, not feelings. This is one of the most destructive forces at work in the demise of marriage. Reliance on feelings rather than intellect. We promise to love and to stay married to one another, for better or worse. But then we get to a place where we simply don't feel like continuing. However, love and truth is not what we feel, but what we promise to do. It may be inconvenient, irritating, or exceedingly difficult. Ask my wife, she'll tell you what it's like dealing with me. Yet what we're committed to with this other person and to God is what is true. Many Christians throughout history have died standing up for the truth. Our culture now promotes our reliance on feelings and makes it easier for us to make decisions based on our emotions, to divorce because we don't feel like continuing, or to kill unborn babies because we don't feel like being inconvenienced. We're encouraged to embrace things that are wrong, immoral, even evil, allegedly for the purpose of being tolerant or kind to others, and to avoid hurting what? Someone's feelings. Um, my wife sometimes calls me the intolerant psychologist. I was thinking of getting business cards made with In conquering our passions, St. Peter of Damascus points out, For it is not food that is bad but gluttony, not money but attachment to it, not speech but idle talk, not the world's delights but dissipation, not love of one's family but the neglect of God that such love may produce, not clothing worn only for covering and protection from cold and heat, but those that are excessive and costly, not the houses that protect us, but outrageously large and expensive. Not owning something, but owning something that has no use for us. Not friendship, but having friends of no benefit to one's soul. Not wine, but drunkenness. Not authority, but love of authority. Not the world, but passions. So passions and feelings are good for us, but they have to be perfected. In, in the Catechism, it reads, In themselves our passions are neither good nor evil. They are morally qualified only to the extent that they effectively engage reason and will. Passions are said to be voluntary either because they are commanded by the will or because the will does not place obstacles in their way. In other words, our passions must be guided by reason. And this is obedience, is it not? The concept of fraternal correction, which is what we're taught to do as Christians, right? To correct others, is discouraged in our culture. It is now considered not nice to correct others who are engaging in immoral behavior. 
or being disobedient to God's will, to truth. And this is the Dominican motto, right? Veritas, or truth. The lack of adherence to truth is at the very core of what's destroying relationships and marriage in our day. Healthy relationships depend on truth, honesty, openness, a willingness to be candid about what is good, what is true. St. Thomas Aquinas says, there is no greater act of love to a friend than to lead them to the truth. The same is true for governments, organizations, and social institutions in their relationship with the people they govern and serve. When a government or any institution is not transparent or does not convey the truth to its people, trust is lost and the relationship is destroyed. This is why communism can never survive, because it controls and denies freedom to people for discovering truth. Institutions can only engender trust when there is truth conveyed to the people they govern. We no longer try to form each other in submission to God. Instead, we try to control and form others to submit to our own preferences and needs. Almost all forms of fraternal correction are now shunned or even outlawed. In fact, do you know that in some states, I would lose my license to practice as a psychologist. It is now illegal in some cases in states to do reparative therapy for same-sex attraction. Even if someone requests it, you can't do it. You'll lose your license. In all our relationships, especially marriage, we're called to bring others out of darkness and into the light of truth. This is why we often say, and there are songs written about the idea that love hurts. However, this kind of love, the kind that may hurt, is the way we form ourselves and the way we form other people. At the same time, we have to be careful about becoming self-righteous in the way in which we convey the truth. As St. Paul conveys in Ephesians, in order for truth to come to life, love must accompany truth. As I've come to learn when I try to teach my wife about truth, unless I come across in a loving and reasonable way, she won't even listen. And even if I'm kind, she may ignore me anyway, so I just keep my big mouth shut. So in the end, my message is what? It's that in our worldly and human relationships, we must avoid succumbing to our feelings, emotions, or passions, and rely more on our intellect to fulfill our promises, and to be obedient to God. Only in this way can we hope to form our spouses, our children, friends, and ourselves to get to heaven. There is no perfect human being out there to please us, and there is only one true church. We simply need to be more obedient, stop running away from what displeases us, seek what is good, beautiful, and true. So all we need to do is go out there and do what you're told. Now, I have a song that I was going to play for you of my wife. She was going to come and sing it, but she's designing somebody's house. Um, it's called The Good, The Beautiful, and The True. Um, but before I play that, do, should, should I play that now? Or do we want to do questions, answers, discussion? Um, if you do questions, then we'll figure out how to play. Do you have I, I have something I can stick it right here in the microphone. Oh, you want me to play it? Yeah. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. This is a song called The Good, The Beautiful, and The True. Okay. And she wrote it when she was pregnant with our ninth. She also wrote another song called Nine More Months, One More Time. <laughs> but this one I thought was appropriate to our talk. So I'm going to... 
Tell me if you can hear this. She just sings it in one song and catches it. <laughs> Questions, comments, criticisms, fraternal corrections. <laughs> yes, sir.
what comes first, self-esteem or God? Most people immediately say self-esteem. Yeah, self-esteem. Just leave it all apart. For the best of it. Read all the books. Dr. Scott. And you say,